I recently found a poem. It's by a meditator named Ted Weinstein. And he apparently wrote this after sitting in a retreat at Spirit Rock. Um, I promise that he didn't pull lines out of your group interviews, although you'll recognize a few of them. This is called, Ways I Have Been a Bad Meditator, you know, (laughs) in parentheses, at a Spirit Rock retreat. I have swallowed repeatedly. (laughs) I have thought about eating a piece of dark chocolate. I have moved my leg because I couldn't endure the pain in my knee. I have wondered whether I left the oven on. I have tried to slow my breathing. I have looked at my watch before the meditation bell rang. I have thought about whether to register for a retreat this coming summer. I have thought about kissing the person on the cushion to my left. (laughs) I have thought about shushing the heavy breathing person to the cushion on my right. I have wanted the teacher to notice how well I am meditating. I have wondered how the teacher can really meditate while constantly checking to see if it's time to ring the bell. (laughs) I've wondered that too. (laughs) I have listened to the sound of the rain. I have worried if I close the windows of my car. I have wondered if living in the moment means that I don't have to put money in a retirement account. (laughs) I have imagined going to Stockholm to accept the Nobel Peace Prize in meditation. I've thought about how my goddaughter laughs when I turn her upside down. I've wanted this feeling of joy to continue. I have focused on the rising and falling of my stomach while breathing when I was trying to focus on the sensation of the breath going in and out of my nostrils. I've decided meditation retreats are a complete waste of time. (laughs) I have wanted to get up and ring the bell at the end of the group sitting. I have opened my eyes to look and see if the teacher's eyes are open. (laughs) I have been annoyed at the bird outside that won't stop cawing. I have wondered if it's time to buy a new meditation cushion. I have thought about making up items for this list. I have wondered if I could ever complete this list. I have decided I will never achieve enlightenment. And I have told myself that I'm a bad meditator. The end. And you really see, I mean, we know that Ted was sitting right here. There's on this blog where this was posted, there's photos out on the courtyard and down at the gate. And you just imagine him sitting there doing all this. And you see how when the judgments feed on the inside, then they flip and turn to the outside and in and out and in and out. And that's how it works, we know. My own personal judgment story, which is an interesting title for one's personal story to begin with, goes back as far as I can remember, as it probably does for most of us. And I was reflecting one of the stories that came up for me during one of these guided meditation exercises when the invitation was to bring up a judgment This old memory came to me of being in fourth grade and I lost my pencil. Apparently I only had one pencil. I lost my pencil. I looked for it everywhere. 
increasing distress. I couldn't believe that I could be so stupid as to lose my pencil. There was something I needed it for. I remember the classroom, searching everywhere. Where is it? Being harder and harder and harder on myself. How could I make a mistake of this caliber? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I remember walking up to my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Morse, struggling to hold back the tears. You know, I wanted to be tough. I was a fourth grader. And I said, I lost my pencil. And she just looked at me with such kindness. She said, Heather, it's behind your ear. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened was the tears spilled out of my eyes down my cheeks. I couldn't receive the kindness. It was just another moment of how stupid I was. And again, her kindness, she said, you know, I always lose my glasses, and nine times out of ten they're on top of my head. And I still could not receive the kindness. It was just me being a mistake to the world. And where did I learn that? I was nine years old. Where did we learn these things? You know, I learned them through a family system where there was a long line of maybe hereditary judgmentism. So I learned it from my parents, who informed me that they had learned it from their parents. And the standards that I held for myself at a much younger age than nine years old were tremendously high. There was no room for anything less than 100% perfection. Nothing less. And I thought the world operated that way. I thought that 100% perfection was the normal bar. And so I demanded it of myself, hated myself when I couldn't meet it, and automatically assumed that this was just the normal bar, so everybody should be meeting it. You can only imagine how that started to manifest as I got older. Everybody's supposed to be 100% perfect. It wasn't that I was giving them a harder time than I was giving myself. I actually thought this was reality based on what I had been presented with. Very painful. And then when I got to my early teens, I did the classic flip, completely flip it over. I thought, well, perfectionism isn't working. This is terrible. I'm going to do the opposite. So I ran around for a number of years trying out the opposite. I had a very high bar of how kind I needed to be. And so I tried being cruel. I was incredibly sensitive. And so I tried being incredibly insensitive, you know, and started building that concrete bunker around the heart of the tough, you know, the tough. I thought that I needed to be 100% responsible and completely adult all the time. Uh, I thought that because I needed to be in my family. And I tried the opposite. Being impeccably responsible, I couldn't measure up, so I tried being impeccably irresponsible in a number of different ways. So you can see where this is going. I flipped it around. And that's what we do. We swing from one extreme to the other. However far one extreme is, we swing to the other. When we don't have the tools, we don't have 
the mindfulness. We don't have the access to our own caring hearts. That's what we do. And so I found myself, after a few years, realizing that not only was the original pain not fixed by doing a complete flip, but in fact I was in even more pain and in a great deal of trouble in my life. So I ended up at the age of 17 sitting on my first meditation cushion thinking, wow, life is really stressful and really painful and uh, it's there were a number of disasters, really, that got me to that cushion. Now what? Now what? Might there be another way? It's one of my favorite questions that Siddhartha asked himself when he was trying to figure out the way to freedom. And at one point he realized that all the things he was doing, while it seemed like they made a lot of sense, weren't actually working. And he asked himself the question, might there be another way? And that actually led him to the Bodhi tree, which I'll talk more about later. So I asked myself that question, not knowing that the Buddha had asked it before me. Might there be another way? And of course you know how the story ends because here I am sitting here. Clearly there was another way. I didn't cultivate a, a life of feeding the judgments or the cruelty or the reactive irresponsibility. I started to learn some tools. And uh, started doing meditation retreats and very quickly engaged the loving-kindness practice, the mindfulness practice as we've been teaching you here. And when I was in my early 20s, James Barres, who was one of my teachers and um, became a mentor at that time for me, came to me and he said, Heather, you know, I want you to teach this meditation. And I thought, oh, what do I know about meditation? I've only been doing it for you know, a few years. And he said, well, you know, I want you to teach meditation to teenagers. We have this teen program at Spirit Rock, and we need a teacher. We need another teacher for it. Would you do this? Now, meanwhile, I had gone to school and, and gotten a teaching degree and, and worked quite a bit with young children, pre-K, kindergarten, you know, maybe third grade, the little ones, you know. So I had some training, but teens, forget it. I had always avoided teens like the plague. Uh, my teen years were the most horrible years of my life, the way they are for some of us. You know? I had no interest in trying to force them to learn anything, you know, because the poor people who tried to force me to learn anything really suffered. And so I said to him, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I don't have experience with teens, and, and I can't do this, and I, actually I don't want to do it. And, and James just said, really? I think you'd be a natural. Okay, thank you, James. And I said, you know, I really don't want to do this. And he looked at me, he said, why not? And so I had to go inside and really figure out why not. And I realized it was because I was afraid of being judged by the ever-so-cool teenage population the way I perceived it in my early 20s. And then James said to me, well, you know, is there any reason that it might be worthwhile for you to stretch? And I reflected again. 
And what came to me were these words, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And in that moment, I realized that there was a very important reason for me to stretch and see if I could support these teens in mindfulness and meditation practice. Because that story that ran my life, I'm not enough. that I could share that with others and share the fact that I had learned some tools to make that storyline more workable, that there was more space in my heart to be less perfect and more fully me. That seemed like a worthy reason to stretch into an area that I was really afraid of being judged. And so I did. And it was a lot of years before I realized that the the first intention for me in teaching Dharma was this theme of judgment and realizing what freedom had already been realized. It wasn't the end of the journey, but there had been so much freedom realized in some short years that I wanted to do this. And so it was really inspiring a couple years ago when Donald first invited me to be a part of this body of work that he's been developing on working with judgments because I have my own story and my own you know, journey and set of tools that are very similar. And I thought that I would share some of those with you tonight. Five areas I want to touch on, the first being mindfulness of the body, and particularly mindfulness of settling and grounding, which I've already been talking about a lot in this retreat, so expand on that a little. Some additional mindfulness practices working with judgments that I find helpful. Talking some more about heart practices, and exploring a little bit about the patterns that we've been learning about through these practices. And then lastly, the way I see the role of wise friendship in supporting these practices of transforming judgments. So we'll start at the beginning. And for me, the beginning is ground. The beginning is space and ground. Because without a connection with the ground, and with the space of heart that can hold everything that has already moved through us, uh, the work is so much more difficult. So when I think about the charge that these judgments are bringing up in us, you know, the tears that have been shed, and, and the sighs, and the red eyes, and you know, followed by the quiet smiles and watching your faces open up, these cycles round and round and round. This piece about finding our ground and giving the nervous system basically enough support to do the work feels really important to me. And so there's a way that we can establish our ground before we do the practice, and there's a way that we can come home to the ground when we're right in the middle of a huge hot stirring and really heavy charge and it feels totally unworkable. So it's, it's a way of relating that is a preparatory ground and also right in the heat of what's going on with us. 
I talked about a few of those practices yesterday morning, so I just want to add a few more, expand a little bit. One thing I didn't mention yesterday morning is actually the simplest thing of all, and it's something that we all know naturally. So we're using mindfulness to remember what we already know. Some of us in our growing up years had people say this to us, you know, you're upset, what do you do? You take a deeper breath. The sadness comes and washes over us and, okay. And sometimes naturally the out-breath, the okay, just comes out with it. You know, it's already there. Why do we do that? The nervous system knows that that's a way to settle. So I'm naming a process that's already happening in us as a support to the process we're engaged in. Another interesting level of that, yesterday I suggested looking around the room and really using your eyes to establish whether it's a safe space in the moment. Another thing that's interesting to do when things are feeling really constricted, which some of you have described, you know, feeling quite constricted and tight, is to do the same thing, looking all the way around the room, turning the neck and you, know, you can even do it right now, just sort of sitting, just looking all the way around the room, you know, noticing that there are three amazing exits in this room. There are plenty of ways out. And we know it intellectually, but to know it directly, we have to look and use our eyes. That's what bodies are for. But also just look around and see how much space there is in this room. There is actually more space than objects. And even more amazingly, there is enough air in this room to breathe. That is a really important thing to look and see when you're feeling the walls closing in. It gets claustrophobic. We actually can't breathe. So we can open our eyes and look and say, wow, there's so much space to hold this. And there's enough room to breathe. And that encourages us to take a deeper breath. Again, As Donald keeps saying as well, these practices are ridiculously simple. They're not designed to cater to our highly intellectual, educated minds. They're working on another level. And again, that practice of of ground and of feeling our feet and really staying connected And I want to tie that practice of continuing to bring your attention to the ground and to the feet when things are feeling intense. You know, when we get stirred up emotionally, energy moves up. If we bring our attention to our feet, it's telling the nervous system that there's choice. And it's bringing it out of that cycle of moving up. That's a vortex that might be too intense in the moment. Here's where it ties into the tradition we have to go back to the story of Siddhartha. And now we have to go back to when he sat down under the Bodhi tree after he said, might there be another way? And his answer was, oh, I think there might be another way. He sat down under the Bodhi tree. And he didn't just relax and sit there and have a good time. Those of you that know the story, uh, he, he was assaulted by every piece of human unfinished business in a system. The fears came, the anger came, 
all these intense, you know, emotions and energies came. And the doubt came. At the very end of the process, the doubt came. And the doubt came in this voice that said to Siddhartha, who do you think you are to be sitting under this bow tree trying to get enlightened? You're not going to get enlightened. Doubt. It's a doubt. And quite a judging voice, as I can imagine. What did he do? What he did was he put his right hand on the earth. In the earth mudra, he put his right hand on the earth and he said, you know, the earth is my witness to countless periods of time of my good intentions, of my practice, of everything that has come to allow me to be sitting here convinced that enlightenment is available. He put his hand on the earth and said, the earth is my witness. That's a beautiful gesture. And it's acknowledging the stability and longevity and unshakability of the earth that can bear witness to our judgments and all the pain associated and can bear witness to our capacity to awaken. So a practice that I quite like out of that, that that I do, and I've shared it with so many people, sometimes I'll look around a meditation hall and see several people doing this, is just when things are getting really rocky, put your right hand in that earth-touching mudra and connect with that lineage of those of us who have dared to ride these waves and say, you know, I care and I'm truly, I'm doing my very best and the earth is my witness to my capacity to be with this moment as it is. To awaken to the freedom that's available within the storm of fear or anger or judgment. So you can try it if you like. Then I'll talk a little bit more about mindfulness practices. And I wanted to bring in a practice that I don't think we'll be doing during this retreat, but those of you that have maybe sat another retreat might remember. It's something that you can use if it's new. And it's a model that's an acronym. I like that because it's easy to remember. And it's the mindfulness acronym of RAIN, R-A-I-N. And what it stands for, R stands for recognize, A stands for accept, I stands for investigate, and N stands for non-identification. I prefer to actually say N, not taking things so personally, because that feels more real. Non-identification is a little conceptual. Uh, Not taking things so personally is exactly the same thing but it's more intimate and and alive because we know these judgments come and they feel so personal. Recognize, accept, investigate, not take things so personally. So how do we use these? Recognize. One thing we haven't mentioned yet in this retreat is counting judgments. 
And it's something that myself and a lot of people I know like to do at times, for example, in the dining hall. We've talked a lot about dining hall practice. It's a great time to count your judgments because at some point you're about to cry and if you have the courage to keep going, eventually you'll start to laugh because you realize, you know, it's just ridiculous. They're coming and coming and coming and coming. And when you get to number 576, I hope you can smile. You just realize, oh, these things are just being produced continuously. Who's in charge of this? Did I choose this? Of course not. Of course not. It's conditioned. Another thing I like to do is the mental noting practice we've been talking about, but I call them creative mental notes. My favorite creative mental note for when I notice a judgment comes from the Wizard of Oz. And it's the line, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) You remember that part at the end, he's pulling the levers of the great Oz and the dog pulls back the curtain and there's this, you know, man pulling the levers. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, it's just an indie. I mean, I could just use the note judgment. But when I use the creative mental note, I smile. And that brings us to the A, accept. The acceptance to be able to smile with what's plaguing us. And the way that when we can allow ourselves to inwardly smile and even outwardly smile, that somatic connection, it uplifts the heart, it uplifts the energy in the middle of a quagmire of judgments, just naturally. This great acceptance. And you'll see all the way through this RAIN model, the thread that really runs through it alongside mindfulness, for me, is playfulness. Is really bringing a playful spirit to this, which can become so heavy. So allowing myself to smile, to laugh at myself. Uh, Another creative mental note that I like under the accept piece is something that Sylvia Borstein likes to say. And she teaches here, and I teach with her a lot. And so I hear her voice in my head, those of you that know her voice. And she says, sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. Take a breath. It's okay. Sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. And so then we go back to this space and ground piece. Oh, yeah, there's pain. Take a breath. It's okay. Acceptance. Compassion, too. And then we move into the investigation, which we've been doing very beautifully in a number of ways. I don't want to add too much to it, because we're learning, and we'll continue learning, about investigating in the body discovering where these judgments live in the body and how they move through their life cycle. And we get to investigate, you know, what triggers them off. That's been part of our reflections. The storylines they tell us, underlying emotions. I'll add to all that a question that I like to ask myself. It's an investigative question, again, that makes me smile. So it's this playfulness piece. And it comes from Ajahn Amaro, who used to be the co-abbot of a Baigiri monastery, our, our sister monastery in Mendocino County. 
He's since left to become the abbot of another monastery, but I worked with him for many years teaching teens in the teen program. And he would ask this question that I love, and I I ask myself when I want to bring an investigative quality. And he has a British accent, so I always hear it in a British accent. And a judgment comes. There it is. It dropped in again. And I just hear Ajahn Amaro's voice. Is that so? I'm a terrible meditator. Is that so? I'm not good enough. Is that so? I'm the best thing that ever happened to the universe. I'm going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. Is that so? You know, and it's just, oh, how true is this? How deeply am I believing this thought that happens to be a judgment? That's the investigative quality. And then for the not taking it so personally, one little thing I enjoy doing is when a judgment comes and it really catches my attention, is actually exaggerating it. You know, because in the moment that I realize, oh, this is just a judgment coming to visit. It feels so personal, but it's not nearly as personal as it appears. What if I exaggerated it? So what's my core judgment story? I'm not good enough. Sitting here minding my own business, I'm not good enough. Yeah, I'm not good enough at you know, meditating, I'm not good enough at teaching, I'm not good enough at sitting here, uh, I don't look good enough to sit here, on and on and on. And I'll just like make them up and I'll start having fun thinking of all the different ways that I could exaggerate this. And at some point I realize, oh yeah, just making it up. Well, here's the interesting thing. Maybe the first one I just made up too. Maybe. Maybe. Found this interesting little story from a meditation teacher. Again, in, in case you think we've got it worked out. I never knew how judgmental I was until I meditated. There was a judgment and opinion about every little thing, inside and out. Too loud, too soft, not enough, too much. Finally, my teacher had me count them. Hundreds of judgments in an hour. I started to laugh a little when I realized it was so clearly a habit, I didn't have to take it so seriously. But then the next year, my practice changed, and I hit rage. That was hard. I had used all those judgments to try to be a good boy for so long. I had no idea how much pain and anger were stored in there. For months it came out in feelings, images, thoughts, and in my body. So we get to recognize, oh, there's all these judgments in there. And then we start to have some acceptance. Oh, you know, hundreds in an hour. This is a process happening to a system here that I'm calling me and taking really personally. The acceptance to see, oh, I did that as a protection to cover up the rage and the pain. And then how to swim in the stew, you know, and bring a kind and curious investigation to it. That's what we're doing. It's pretty remarkable.
And then there's the kind of the cultivation quality that the heart practices are pointing to. Whether it's realizing that it's skillful to shift our attention to the heart practices, or whether we realize, oh, cultivating the heart is the most skillful thing right now. I'm really enjoying listening to people share their experience and and your process of learning these tools to begin with and then how to apply them. In every situation, every moment is a little different. Should I bring in some loving kindness now? What about compassion? Maybe it's more about the pain and compassion in this moment. Maybe I need to investigate a little more fully in the body. There's no right answers. We're each on a journey. This piece about love, you know, about collecting the mind around kindness and around caring. It's a quote on love from Stephen Levine, which says, We use the word love, but we have no more understanding of love than we do of anger or fear or jealousy or even joy because we've seldom investigated what that state of mind is. What are the feelings we so quickly label as love? For many, what is called love is not lovely at all, but a tangle of needs and desires. Moments of unity, intense feelings of closeness occur in a mind so fragile that the least squint or sideways glance shatters its oneness into a dozen ghostly paranoias. Do they like me? Am I okay? You know, you can hear the whispers. But what I mean by love is not an emotion. It is a state of being. True love has no object. Many speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There is no I and other, and anyone or anything it touches is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone. You can only be unconditional love. We've been talking a lot about the loving-kindness flavor of the heart practice. I want to talk a little bit more about the compassion flavor, which we tasted this morning. For me, when I came into meditation practice, I was encouraged to do a lot of heart practice and originally loving-kindness practice. And while I enjoyed it, it was soothing in some way. There was also some way that it wasn't completely touching the depth of the pain in my heart. And when I was introduced to the fact that these heart practices have different flavors for different times. That was very useful. So when we call, you know, when joy arises, that this is part of the process and to celebrate it and nurture it and encourage it is part of these heart practices. You know, it's not cheating to invite joy to increase, to take a breath with it and feel it fully in our bodies, you know, to smile with happiness, as some of you have been today. The same with the pain. You know, to take a breath with the pain. So these were, sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. You know? 
So for me, that particular flavor was really helpful to know about. And the practice of putting the hand on the heart and the other hand on the belly was a really important somatic connection to just hold the pain. And the reason that I chose the phrases that I use, that I shared with you today, um, I'll share them again. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. This is why I chose them. Firstly, because the very first line is simple and easy to remember in a moment of distress. We're caught in a judgment quagmire. It's very murky. We have no idea what the underlying emotion is in that moment. But maybe there could be this realization of, oh, this hurts, I care. Ow. Oh, I care. Very simple. I don't just use it on the cushion. I use it all the time, every day. Just noticing the contraction of the heart in pain. I care. Just automatic. Automatic. Then the second line, I care about this pain. I chose not to say, I care about my pain, or I care about your pain. And the reason that I chose that is because I realized that underneath my pain, which is deep, and your pain, which is deep, there is the pain. The pain that even though I have my own story, of where it came from and how it lives in me and how I act it out, and you have yours. Um, Underneath those individualities, there's just the pain. So just saying, I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. That really addresses one of the so-called near enemies of compassion, or that which masquerades as compassion but isn't quite. And that's the heart that cares so much that it gets lost in the other and actually does damage to the self and maybe to the other. And sometimes we call it codependence. In this moment, can the caring be enough to ease the pain? Can we trust that bringing a caring heart to my pain and to your pain in this moment can be enough? Through the caring, may the pain be eased. And then out of that caring... Ideas for skillful response will have much more room to flower. So I'm not saying no skillful response, but I'm talking about the caring heart um, that can have enough space for a skillful response, perhaps a new response that's not in our habit patterns to arise. We've been learning an awful lot about patterns. And I'm very touched by all the various contexts that I'm listening to you, whether it's during our questions and answers or or other times during the day. And, you know, all the different patterns that we're learning about here, whether it's patterns of the way we beat ourselves up, Patterns of the way we push other people away. Patterns of, of rage, of fear, of guilt, overhelping. All the different patterns. 
And again, while they're intensely personal in our lives, I just threw out a few, and I'm sure a few of you thought, oh, she's talking about me. I am. Because it's us. We all have these patterns. They play out in different ways, yes, but they're there. We all have our ways. And going back to the compassion, something that I really come home to is just realizing when I'm noticing a habit pattern that isn't skillful and is causing a lot of pain to self or other, realizing, oh, I developed this during a time when I didn't have any other tools. You know, this habit that I'm playing out might have actually saved my heart during a time when I had no other options available. You know, and what compassion to realize, oh, these same things that are a little outdated at whatever age we are now were incredibly helpful in fourth grade with the pencil, you know, behind my ear, perhaps. So that great compassion at heart that can meet that and realize, oh, the past is the past, the past is playing out in the present. There's a noticing it's outdated. But there's also a bow of respect. And I think of it this way. It's like bowing to that which got me here. Ah, judgment pattern. Thank you for getting me here. And now I can rest in something bigger. Just briefly, though, I want to talk about kind of the root underlying pattern of all this. The birth of judgments. Where do they come from? I'm not saying I'll answer where they come from. But there is a root pattern of how we create reality that that pretty much is, is shared among human beings when our hearts are clouded and we're confused. So where does it start? It actually starts, I believe, with a seed of what I like to call basic goodness. And that might have different meanings to you. The seed of that which is inherently whole, no matter what we've done or haven't done in our lives, no matter what we've thought or haven't thought, um, there's, there's some seed there. And what happens is we get clouded by ignorance. That's where the cycle starts in Buddhist psychology. We get clouded by ignorance. We get confused. And so it's almost like, think of, you know, this pot, right? And there's seeds of basic goodness and seeds of confusion. And they're all planted, you know, they're all planted. And what's going to sprout today? What's going to sprout in this moment? Sometimes it's a little like that. So out of the seeds of ignorance... What immediately happens is what I call a basic split. And the basic split is a split that says, okay, there's this wholeness, there's this oneness, and ouch, okay, over here is me, and over here is you. Over here is me, over there is you. You know, Over here is me, and this object over here is other. And there's a split. You know, and it's a split of duality. And natural split in this world that we live in, this world of objects and and thoughts and beings, a natural split to have happen. And yet in that split, there arises this basic fear, 
that's so fundamental that it's before the anxiety that we feel shaking in ourselves. It's, it's before that. It's much deeper than that. It's kind of that quiet, pervasive fear that we tap into in moments and go, where did that come from? What is that about? Everything's fine. You know, there's a basic split and there's this fear. And out of that fear then arises kind of energies that we're more familiar with. The mind that wants, the mind that doesn't want, the mind that swings into um, all kinds of cycles of inflation and deflation. I'm the best thing that ever happened. I'm going to go get the Peace Prize in meditation. I am the worst meditator that's ever hit the planet Earth. I should go eat worms. You know, whatever it is. And we swing back and forth across these dualities, back and forth. And if you think about a pendulum, the way a pendulum works, you know, it starts slow. And then as it gets momentum going, it swings further and further and further. And so we find ourselves in these cycles of putting ourselves up and then smashing ourselves down. And we put ourselves up to try to compensate for smashing ourselves down and back and forth and back and forth. But what I like about the pendulum image is, you know, if you think about this is I'm the best thing that ever happened to planet Earth, and you think about this other hand is I'm the worst thing that ever happened to planet Earth, look at how much space there is in between. There is endless possibilities here of other ways to relate. There's so much space. And we don't have to be caught in the extremes. And that's what we're doing here. We're giving ourselves the time to settle into seeing the possibilities. Mindfulness offers us choices. And this doesn't just play out, of course, for ourselves individually, it plays out in every interpersonal dynamic. So with our loved ones, you know, it's playing out in this meditation hall silently. We put ourselves up, we put other people down, we put ourselves down and therefore, you know, they're better because we did it wrong and look how great they are, on and on and on. We play this out on a national level continuously. For us to be number one, someone else has to be number two. And my favorite quote kind of speaks to the way self gets created and perhaps a way out. It actually comes from the Buddha, but it's often attributed to Gandhi, who used it a lot. It goes like this. The thought becomes the word. The word transforms into the deed. The deed hardens into the character. The character manifests as the destiny. So watch your thoughts with care and let them spring from love out of respect for all beings. You you see how it gets built. The thought becomes the word. The word transforms into the deed. The deed hardens into the character, me. And the character manifests as a destiny because this me only has certain choices about what destiny could arise. But when we watch the way we do here with deep caring and let the love spring forth and the respect, all of a sudden there's more possibility. 
And we all know that. We've all experienced that here already. Lastly, there's the support of friends. And friends support us in our practice of transforming judgments in different ways. One way is that they can be a catalyst. So this is a quote from Pema Chodron. And and it's interesting, it comes from a set of teachings that are slogans in the Tibetan tradition, the graduated path of teachings. So teachings for daily life as well as for on retreat. And the slogan is, be grateful to everyone. Here's what she has to say. Others will always show you exactly where you are stuck. They say or do something and you automatically get hooked into a familiar way of reacting, shutting down, speeding up, or getting all worked up. When you react in the habitual way, with anger, greed, and so forth, it gives you a chance to see your patterns and work with them honestly and compassionately. Without others provoking you, you remain ignorant of your painful habits and cannot train in transforming them into the path of awakening. So there it is. And we experience it. We're social beings, so we experience it whether we want to or not. I was remembering back to a friend who supported me in the catalyst way. This was a number of years ago. And I was telling him a long and heated story about Spirit Rock Meditation Center, where I worked for many years. And when I was done with the story, he looked me square in the eye and he said, You know, Heather, you are the queen of judgmental Buddhism. (laughs) Wow, was that a wake-up call. Uh, And even though I was completely mortified, incensed, uh, immediately beat myself up and then blamed him, I really got it in that moment that he had hit on something incredibly important that I might not have seen for a really long time myself. And having immersed myself completely every day of my life in the Dharma scene, what I had begun to develop was a set of views and opinions and expectations about what a good Buddhist was. And I was judging my community based on that expectation. And he caught it for me. Be grateful to everyone. I'm very grateful to him. Because that allowed the transformation, the investigation to occur much earlier than I would have caught it on my own. So that's one style of wise friendship interaction. And then another style is, is more of a... What? Less fiery, uh, gentle and supportive style. And when I think about the RAIN model, recognize, accept, investigate, not take things so personally, I really think of friends as mirrors. 
Because so often our friends see qualities in us that we can't see so clearly in ourselves. And often they're the beautiful qualities. So the friends that we really trust, that we can say the truth of the ways that we're being hard on ourselves and say the truth of the ways that we're polarizing and judging the world. They can hold that with us and they can also recognize that seed of goodness you know, and the qualities that we have in us that we might not be seeing in the moment. You know, a good friend in their wisdom has so much acceptance for us just the way we are when we're at our worst and our best. And they offer that. You know, nothing special. You know, you're just hanging out, doing whatever you do. But it's there. And to, to remember that it's there, to use it. Especially the acceptance part, because it's so easily missed in the events and the dialogue and the words. And the acceptance is this gentle field that runs through it, easily missed. You know, the way that we can investigate our sense of self and the ways that we get caught and and share our insights with our dear ones and their perspective doesn't mean it always has to be right. It's just helpful. And a really good friend has enough of a sense of humor to help us not take it so personally, you know, to remind us what we've forgotten, this too shall pass. Whatever it is. And so for the rest of our time here, I really want to make a plug for allowing your, what, your... Your um, silent but very alive relationship with our community here to be that friend. To feel the field of acceptance that's here. You know, to know that every one of us is grappling with judgments, but we're all learning tools and we're all committed to using them. You know, and feel that support when it feels too much for you to hold what's here, um, feeling that there's someone sitting behind you or beside you that's going through their own process, which has the same ebb and flows as yours, even though the storyline might be different, feeling that silent support, you know, let it feed you as much as you can. Because really we're all in this together, you know. We're very much all in this together. I'll end with a poem. It's by Persia Gerstler. And it's a poem about what we're doing here. Really the heart of what we're doing here. Finally, on my way to yes, I burn into all the places where I said no to my life. All the unintended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin and bones. Those coded messages that sent me down the wrong street. 
again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, the judgments. And I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy, holy. So we can all take a breath into our hearts again and reaccess the depth of the caring and remembering that that depth of caring can include the heart of stone in this moment. It's part of the caring. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.